Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Now, if you've been following along, we've been doing this now for 16 whole weeks. We're in week number 17. And the story of Jacob and Joseph actually take up about half of the book of Genesis. So around chapter 25, we begin this message in this story of Jacob and is, of, who turns into Israel. And here we see that he is coming to the end of his life. And over the next three chapters, we see it un- this, this message, this thing that's been happening from the very first chapter unfolding, and we're going to summarize it here today. So in chapter 48, verse 1, we're going to read a couple verses, and we'll talk a little bit, and talk a little bit, and read a couple verses, and just go through it. So Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. Chapter 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. And then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a great company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who are born to you in the land of Egypt, that's important, kind of put a little tag there, before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And when Israel saw Joseph's son, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me. Here And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. So again, Jacob is on his deathbed, and he turns to his son Joseph and tells him he has a plan to take two of Joseph's sons as his own. Now, if you've been keeping track and been doing the math in your head, we know that Jacob has a total of 12 sons, and now he's going to add two, that word Joseph's, and that's going to bring the total to 14. But I'm struck here, as I'm reading there, I'm thinking, I'm struck by Joseph's reaction here. I mean, his dad just basically stole, bogarted, however you want to take, just took two of his sons from him and said, no, they're going to be mine. But Joseph doesn't even bat an eye. He just continues and says, okay, dad, I'm fine with that. And I'm just to be honest with you, um, I've got one son and my dad's got two. And if my dad came to me and said, I'm going to take your only son from you, I'm, going to, I'm probably going to put up the hard pass sign and say, nope, nope, this is my son. This is mine. You, can, you have your 12 sons. You have enough. You're not taking my two. But again, Joseph just says, nope, here, you can have them. I'm going to get into the significance of the 14 sons here in a second, but I want to just pull something out of this that I feel is important for us. Joseph has done something, and that's why I said put a tag there, that part about Egypt. He's done something that his ancestors were warned not to do. He's married outside the family of Israel. And Abraham told Isaac not to marry a Canaanite woman, but instead take a wife from Abraham's home country of Haran. And you'll find later in the Torah, and I'm going to probably say this a lot throughout the rest of the couple chapters, I'm going to tell you to keep reading, don't just stop at Genesis, keep reading. But later in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you're going to see that marrying outside of the family of the children of Israel was, becomes a warning. In Deuteronomy 7, 1, we're not going to put it on the screen, I'm just going to read it here. It says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, this is the promised land, he clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Gerashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations, minor and more numerous than you, when the Lord your God gives you over to you and you defeat them, then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons and their daughters to your sons, for that would turn away your children from following me to serve other gods. And the same warning was later on applied 
to the Ammonites and the Moabites, who, if you remember our study in chapter uh, week six, was the descendants of Lot's two daughters. So you may be asking, okay, well, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Egypt. Well, so let me get to that. While there is some debate on who, out of Noah's sons, where they settled, it is mostly believed that in the ancient world, after Noah repopulated the earth and his three sons, that Egypt and Canaan were settled by his son Ham. And if you remember the story that we studied in chapter 9 of uh, Noah, Ham was cursed by his father because he covered his nakedness. And that was, if you want to go back and get all the context and why that was a curse, you can go back and check out that message by Pastor Marshall. And continuing on, Egypt becomes this thing where, you know, if you keep reading, there's this thing later on where they're antagonists to the people of Israel. Several times through the story of of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, you see this thing that God keeps telling the people of Israel, I am the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is a country that enslaved them. So there's the same, the same warning that's applied to Canaanite gets applied to Ham, and it's do not intermarry with them. Don't follow their rules. Don't follow their gods. Follow me. And you may be asking yourself, like, why is this important? Why, why is this intermarrying such an issue? For to me, as I'm reading this, I'm getting a couple of things. Number one, God is mostly concerned that by intermarrying with other nations at this time, it would throw them off the path of following God. That's number one. Number two, now imagine... So we know, as we just read in Deuteronomy, that God's going to tell the people, you're going to go into the promised land, show them no mercy, kill them all. But if they've intermarried with them, including Egyptians, now you're going to have a problem. Because now as you go into the promised land, you're going to have aunts and uncles, right? You're going to have some distant family members. You're going to have some father-in-laws, mother-in-laws living in this country. And when you go in to take them out, there's going to be maybe a moment where you say, well, maybe we shouldn't because they're family. So what God is doing as any good dad, he's taking these descendants of these two brothers and he's saying, okay, I get it. You're part Jacob, family of of Abraham, but you're also part Egyptian. So what's he doing here? He's laying the groundwork for adoption. He's making the claim right now in this time of Israel's history, do not intermarry with these people. He's a dad. He's a father. He's like, I've got the big picture. I know what I'm doing. I've got the vision. There's purpose behind all of this because one day, Israel, I'm going to show you that I'm the God of all nations. All people are my people. And one day, Israel, you're going to have to accept other people groups into this family. And you see this in the New Testament. It's one of the primary issues, if not the primary issue, that the apostles were dealing with in the time of the New Testament. They were going into heavily Jewish areas was this commingling of Gentile and Jewish cultures into one people group, one family of God. So what God is trying to show his people early on in the book of Genesis, before this, you know, we get into Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and the rest of the Old Testament, is that thousands of years earlier, before we even get to Jesus, that adoption was his plan all along. And I'm hopefully that's doing a little thing and pride in your heart, because it tells us that us, because I'm pretty sure I'm looking around the room, most of us are probably Gentiles, right? And it should tell us something, that we were not an afterthought. We weren't just something that... God thought of later on down the story when he got to, you know, sending out the apostles to tell the gospel to the rest of the nations. No, we were part of this story. We were part of this idea of adoption early on, thousands of years before. So let's pick up in verse number 10. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought him near And he kissed him and embraced him. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see Israel, I'm sorry, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God let him see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand towards his right hand. So this is kind of weird. So what what you have is, you have Jacob, his, his, his eyes are going out. And he asked for Joseph to bring his two sons. And Joseph, being a dad, he, he lines them up in age order based on their right hand and left hand. 
And Israel stretched out his right hand, verses verse 14, and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and left his hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and the sons and said, Then God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been a shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude into the midst of the earth. That sounds a lot like the same blessing that Isaac gave, I mean, Abraham gave to Isaac and Isaac gave um, Jacob. And in verse 14, um, 17 it says this, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. He took his father's hand and tried to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, father, since the one who is the firstborn put your right hand on his head. But the father refused and said, No, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people and also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel, pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Again, this little moment is reminiscent of Jacob receiving the blessing of his, over his older brother. Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to his father. And when his father tries to bless the younger over the older, Joseph steps in and says, no, Manasseh's the older. Joseph's, Jacob's like, no, I know what I'm doing, son. I may be blind, I may be old in age, but I know what I'm doing. But we're not told. What's interesting about the Bible, and we sometimes have to try to get ourselves in between the verses, which I think sometimes is kind of a a scary thought. But we're not told why Jacob chose Ephraim over Manasseh. We're giving no hint into the character of Manasseh that explains why the younger would be elevated over the older. Because if you remember when Jacob got the blessing over Esau, there was this thing with Esau where he was kind of uninterested in receiving the blessing in the first place. But we're not given anything like that between Ephraim and Manasseh. In fact, Jacob even says that both of these sons will be great, but it will again be the older who serves the younger. And we see this pattern throughout Scripture where the younger, or what we would see as the lesser party, is elevated to a higher status than the older, more seemingly greater or rightful heir. I'm thinking when I was reading this, I was thinking to the Beatitudes, and it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus says, The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And so I wonder, as we're all sitting here listening to this today, I wonder of how many of us today feel like that younger brother. We struggle with self-doubt, or we think God only chooses the best and brightest. Maybe we have felt the calling of ministry on our heart. We feel the call to be a pastor or a worship leader, or we felt the call to go into missions. We feel the need and the desire to teach. But somehow in our own brains and hearts, we've convinced us ourselves of our own unworthiness. I wonder then, have we like, when we had that thought, and I can tell you right now, I've had that thought. Have we even read the Bible? Because God called Moses a guy who was admittedly slow to speech and slow in tongue. That's Exodus 4.10. To lead the people out of slavery, to establish his law and ordinances, raise up future leaders, navigate 40 years of the desert wandering, and lead the people to the promised land. Aaron, the eventual high priest, built a golden calf for Israel to worship, and then later tried to lie about it, saying that the people forced him to do it. In a culture that told women to sit down and shut up and be quiet, God called in Judges 4 the prophetess Deborah to lead the people of Israel in battle against the king of Canaan. Rahab was a prostitute, but she saved two Hebrews. Ruth was a widow. Esther was an orphan. He chose David, who was the youngest of eight and not the mightiest looking of the brothers, to defeat a giant and be crowned the king of Israel. Elijah, the prophet, was at times weak and ran when trouble came around. Gideon, the judge, kept questioning God's provision, asking them over and over, would he save Israel? Matthew was a tax collector hated by Jews. Peter was a fisherman, and John Mark was a deserter. 
I'm not sure. Can you throw that image on there? I don't think you've seen this. Maybe you have. I love this. It pops up on my, my uh, Facebook every once in a while, and it gives me so much comfort. Because, I don't know, I mean, like, think about this, right? Before God created the concept of heaven and earth, and you can leave that up there for a second. Before the foundations of the world, his plan factored in all of the stupidity that you would ever take place among all of his little image bearers. Adam and Eve, he knew that they would eat the fruit. He knew Abraham would try to work around his promise and have a son with Hagar. He knew Jacob would steal the blessing. He knew all the sins committed by all the 12 sons and still raised them up and put them up as the 12 tribes of Israel. He knew Ephraim, the son that was just blessed, would later fall into deep, dark evil and idolatry, and he called and blessed him anyways. He knew that Samson would cut his hair. He knew that King Saul would lose his mind, that David would fall to Bathsheba, that Solomon would have lots of woman problems. He knew that over 30 kings of Judah and Israel would do evil in his eyes. He knew Israel would lose the Ark and the, of the Covenant and had the temple destroyed. He knew Peter was a hothead and would cut off the ear of the soldier and Thomas would doubt. He knew Judas would betray his son and that Paul would persecute the church. And I stand here today called at 18, 20 years later, and man, if I, <laughs> if I just listed all my screw-ups just in order, y'all would probably just kick me out of the building. And I, but I'm here, standing. So yeah, that should bring us some comfort. Because he's already factored in all the times you're going to screw up. All your failures, all your doubts, your limitations, but your strengths too. So maybe today, one of you here, at times I feel this way, we feel like the younger brother. Maybe we feel like the older brother. I don't know. That's not the point. The point is this. He gives, us, he, he gives us two promises. One, and well, it's not wealth and it's not success. It's I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. So if to, today, if you have that calling, if you feel like you're being led somewhere by something deep inside of you, but you're questioning your calling, that's a you problem, not a God problem. It may mean that you need to step out and try. You may find out when you do step out that it was just an earthly desire, flesh. You did want the, the spotlight. You did want to stand here. But I can tell you right now, this is a heavy thing. Standing up here preaching or worship leading or being in missions, it's, it's not just something that we just ease into. It's heavy. But if you want to do it and you're called and you feel called, try it. You've got to step out. Chapter 49. Now, at the, end of, at the end of chapter 48 and 49 here, what happens is Jesus, uh, Jacob now turns to his other 12 sons. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, we do not have time today to go through every single one of these verses. It doesn't seem like it's that long. It's only 27 verses-ish, 33 if you look at the whole chapter. Um, but what this is, is Jacob turns to his 12 sons and he starts to bless each of them. Um, this could be a series on its own, okay? So what I'm going to do is give you the Cliff's Notes version, um, and we're going to go through a highlight, a few of the sons. I'm going to put my notes online. We do this every week when we preach. We put our notes online. I'm going to put the context for all the sons there. So what we're going to do is I'm going to kind of give you the main points for each of the sons we're going to cover, then we're going to do some application at the end. So you have to think about this, though, right? So before we read, Jacob has 12 sons. At this time, he's around 147 years old. He had Reuben when he was around, I don't know, 65. That's the guess. I've looked it up. That means he's been with his sons 80 years. So it's a fair guess that what he's about to do, he knows his sons better than anybody. He knows their weaknesses. He knows their strengths. And so again, for the sake of time, we're only going to highlight a few. Um, again, cliff notes. I'll give you the rest of the, the notes um, online. So, okay, Chapter 49, verse 1, and Jacob says this, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and my firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. 
starting off pretty good. If you're going to bless your oldest, that's the kind of stuff I want to hear, right? I'm going to be in preeminent in power, in preeminent glory, but then it gets not so good. So verse 4, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to the Father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and defiled it. Now, Reuben was the oldest, born to Leah, which was Jacob's first wife. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. Leah was the older. Rachel was his beloved wife, the one that he wanted to marry. He got tricked into marrying Leah. And he had two other maidservants from both of these wives. And what uh, Jacob is referencing here is the moment when Reuben decided to bring dishonor to the family, and he went and slept with his, excuse me, make sure I get this right, his, his stepmother's servant, who was actually, his stepmother was his aunt, and that's the, that's the weird part. And so he slept with Billah, the maidservant of Rachel. See that in chapter 32, 35, verse 22. And it kind of becomes like, it seems like a footnote in history, and Pastor Marshall talked about this, that there's not really any retribution at the time. That Marshall mentioned that later on, Reuben would get his comeuppance, so to speak. And that moment, right, now it's, it's happening. What we're seeing here is that the blessing that would normally come to the firstborn, he's not getting it. That, that inheritance, that, that, that the thing that's being passed down from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob, it's not going to go to Reuben and his descendants. It's going to be passed on to someone else. He loses not only the inheritance, which would be like the, fin- the financial and land, but he also loses the leadership role of the family, which is rightful to the oldest. And from that, if you keep reading, like I say, keep reading, you're going to find out that in all of Israel's history, not a single important leader, not a judge in the book of Judges, military leader, a prophet, a king, not a single important person of all of Israel would come from the tribe of Reuben. That was his punishment for doing this evil thing. Read, uh, we're going to start in verse 5 here. Now, so now we're, past, we're, we're continuing. He's got Reuben, he's taking care of that, and he's going to move on to Simeon and Levi. He says this in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Again, this seems more like a curse and not a blessing. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So again, based on the family line of succession and how this worked in Jewish history. Simeon, the second oldest, should have received a leadership role in the inheritance. But again, we see here that's not going to happen. Him and Levi both are passed over because apparently these two brothers had some anger issues. And you may be wondering, where is that coming from? Well, if you remember back in chapter 34, there was this horrible moment when this guy Shechem raped, brutally raped, Simeon and Levi's sister. And their reaction, while you would think as a father and a husband and a brother, I have a, I have a sister, I would want retribution over my sister or something like this happened. But they didn't just go after the guy, Shechem. They went in and killed Shechem and all the men of the city. So the shame is that they went too far. That the, the, and I know this is kind of like not the best way to say it maybe, but like the, the, crime, the punishment didn't fit the crime. All the men in the city had to die because of this, this thing. That doesn't mean rape, we, we excuse it, but to kill all the men, according to Jacob, that was, a, that was a punishment too far. And so you may be saying, though, like, wait a minute, Simeon, I don't really recognize that name, but I recognize the name Levi. I know that tribe. They were important. How did they get away from this curse being scattered throughout Israel? So if, again, if you keep reading, there's this moment in Jewish history, it's an important moment. It's at Mount Sinai. And there's this moment when Moses has now led the people out of Egypt. They're no longer enslaved. They crossed over the Red Sea. They have this cool little worship moment. And then they're at this mountain, and God's shown himself, his glory on the mountain. And the people are encamped around Mount Sinai. 
And so Moses goes up to the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments and the law and all of that. And the people, though, he's been up there for 40 days and 40 nights. He's been up there a while. And the people start to grumble. They start to get nervous. And so they convince Aaron and they take off all their jewelry, their, red, their gold earrings and bracelets, and they convince him to melt this gold and build them a uh, calf. This is the golden calf moment. So Moses is on the mountain. He hears, and God's angry, and he spends a couple of chapters trying to convince God not to just wipe out all the people because God's angry. And God relents because Moses has stepped in, in front and said, no, I mean, God, you don't have to do it this way. And he comes down off the mountain. And he stands before the people, and Moses isn't happy either. And he stands before the people of Israel and says, Who today will stand with God? And the tribe of Levi raised their hands. And Moses calls them forward. And you know what they're asked to do? Draw their swords and go through the camp and kill their brothers. And 3,000 Israelites died that day. And then Moses says this to the people of the tribe of Levi, and he says this, And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day again about 3,000 men of the people fell, and Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that they, he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Levi in this moment is redeemed and given the status of the tribe of priests. So later on, you're going to find that the 12 tribes were allotted the land of the promised land after they took it over. But Levi is not given a, an allotted land. Their portion is the temple, is the tabernacle, the sacrifices that are given to them. That's their portion. We later find out that in Deuteronomy 18, it tells us that the Lord was their inheritance. Now, Simeon, Simeon they get scattered among the tribe of Judah's land. They're not given anything either. And again, they become a footnote in history. So Simeon, again, is scattered throughout Judah. They were not given any territory. And even in Moses, in Moses in Deuteronomy 33, leaves Simeon off of the tribal blessings. So one was redeemed and one was not. So let's pick up in verse 8. So again, we're continuing through the brothers and we get to Judah. Probably all know the tribe of Judah. It's familiar to us. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So Israel, Jacob, now moves on to Judah, his fourth oldest. And he says, The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his feet, until tribute comes to him, and he shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, Judah assumes the leadership role. So we've gotten on to the fourth son, and J Jacob now says, Judah, you're now going to lead your brothers. And you may be asking, why Judah? Now, if you remember, there's a couple of reasons why I think J Jacob looked at Judah and said, you could lead the people. One, you remember uh, when they were the, the brothers were going to kill Joseph, when they threw him in the pit, Judah was the one that stepped in and said, no, I, let's not kill him. Let's sell him. He had some lady issues as well. That seems like, like a pattern in Israel in chapter 38. But by chapter 43, he seems to have grown and matured from these issues, his past sins. And he speaks boldly in front of Joseph and even suggests that he, they take him in place of Benjamin while the sons went back and gathered Jacob. You've also maybe heard this phrase, the lion of Judah. Well, we read here that Judah is a lion's cub. And this term, lion of Judah, becomes a, the, natural and, the, natural, the national and cultural symbol of the Jewish people. The tribal symbol actually now appears on the emblem of Jerusalem. And if you keep reading, you get to Revelation chapter 5. The lion of Judah 
is referenced as a symbol of Jesus. And some believe as well as over time, Judah gets shortened to Jew, and that's where we get the Jewish people. Now, many scholars also believe that this is one of the first prophecies stating that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Track this with me, right? So, in Genesis chapter 3, we are told that a seed of mankind would come and crush the serpent's head. Noah's son Shem is blessed after the flood. Abraham is a descendant of Shem, and God blesses Abraham and makes a covenant with him. That, that blessing is then passed down to his son Isaac, who then passes that blessing on to Jacob. And Jacob is now passing that on to his son Judah and says that the scepter will not leave Judah's hand. His brothers will praise him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. King David was part from the tribe of Judah, and the covenant between God and David says this, I will raise up your offspring after you, and shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. The Messiah is later prophesied right here that it would come from the line of David. The prophet Micah declares that the Messiah would come from a, where? Bethlehem, which is a city within the tribe of Judah. Matthew chapter 1 shows us the lineage from Jesus, of Jesus, from Abraham to David, David to Joseph and Mary. And where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. That's Judah. Only the God of the Bible could orchestrate such a beautiful symphony. Let's pick up in verse 22. Now, I said we're going to skip some brothers. We're going to skip Zebulun and Ezekar and Dan and Asher and Naphtali, and we're going to jump down to Joseph. It's a lot of skipping we just did. Again, I'm going to put all the context for how their, their uh, particular um, prophecies worked out in, over Israel's history. So verse 22, Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bow and a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the, by the God of your father, who you will help. By the Almighty, who will bless you. The blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of the parents up to the bounties of an everlasting hills. May they be the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who set apart from his brothers. So I don't know if you can pick up from that. Uh, Jacob has no problems playing favorites. And clearly, out of all the sons of Jacob, the 12, and now including number up to 14, Joseph is his favorite. And it's kind of hard not to blame him. He was the firstborn of his beloved wife, Rachel. He even says in chapter 37 that Joseph was his favorite. He made him a coat of many colors, which in ancient times was a high sign of love and affection and honor. And again, what did Joseph end up doing? He saved his family, restored the relationship between him and his brothers, saved that area from a famine, and now is second command of, of, in Egypt. Kind of hard not to think of that son as, you know, your favorite. And so it's not surprising, as we skip th through this, that Jacob would now pass on the firstborn inheritance to his son, Joseph, but he also gives him the longest of the blessings, 12. So in verse 27, we see Benji here. Oh, good old Benjamin. It says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at the evening dividing the spoil. And that's all we get about Benjamin. But Benjamin is an important tribe. He's the youngest of 12. And his short little prophecy is quite accurate. The tribe of Benjamin becomes later on known for their zeal for God but also their archery skills, which plays into the morning devouring the prey and dividing the spoils. King Saul, the first king of Israel, was a Benjamite, but also the apostle Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And what is he known for? Probably, if anything, he's known for his great zeal and love for the Lord. So I have two takeaways here. One is as parents... As if I'm reading this, 
It is so so important for us to speak truth to our kids. As a father, I can appreciate what Jacob is doing here. He knows his sons. He knows them better than anyone. He spent 80 years with them. He's intimately aware with their weaknesses and their issues. He knows their strengths. He knows Reuben's going to be a bad leader. He knows Levi and Simeon, they have some anger issues. Joseph, when he was younger, he had a, had a wild mouth. He kept bragging about his dreams and his brothers, you know, would bow before him. He knows Benjamin is the baby, and if you're the baby of 12 brothers, you better learn how to fight. And he's seen Joseph grow and mature into a mighty man of God, and he knows that G- Judah can lead his family well. And what strikes me, though, is his brutal honesty. He's not pulling punches. He's telling them exactly what he thinks is going to happen to them as he sees their lives playing out. And he does it even if the truth is going to hurt them. And as a father and a pastor, I can tell you that challenges me. As a dad, I only want the best for my kids. I want to be a source of positivity in their life. You can do anything. You can be anything. Reach for the stars. But we do our kids a disservice when we, 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 we withhold truth about who they are or what they could be. And I'm not saying that we have to be mean to our kids, right? But I believe what Scripture is showing us here is that we need to be like Jacob and God and sometimes Jesus, speaking truth in love for the good of our kids, for their growth and overall maturity. I encourage you, like, go read the prophets. When God is speaking through the prophets, to his kids, it's not always peace, love, and joy. Hugs around a campfire. Kumbaya. Most of the times, it's rebuke and warnings of some sort of future calamity. There were a lot of hard truths that God had to speak to his kids through the prophets, his chosen people, his kids. I know with my own kids, I can, you know, they're 11, 8, and 6, which is pretty young still, but I can already see the things that they're going to struggle with as they get older. How they treat adults. How they can be rude sometimes to adults, and it drives me absolutely nuts. None of my kids are in the room, so they're okay. They're not going to listen to this. Sometimes they can be lazy, and it drives me nuts. The rooms aren't always clean. They don't always do everything that we ask them to do. They can be procrastinators, like their dad. But I also can see their goodness. I, yesterday I was on the couch and I was taking a nap, as I'm prone to do, and um, I was watching this barbecue show on Netflix, and my, I guess Landon had come in the room and sat next to me, and I didn't see him, and I wake up, and I, I'm startled when I see him. I'm saying, hey, buddy, how long have you been there? He's like, oh, I just saw the end of that episode. And he turns to me and he goes, it almost made me cry. And I was like, wait, a barbecue show almost made you cry? You are my son. Like, what is, what is this, right? And he said when the... When the guy at the end of that episode got kicked off the show, he was so sad, it almost made my son cry. I was like, that's my son. That's my kid. Like, when I watch um, Secretariat, that daggum horse keeps winning, and I get a little teary-eyed. You know what I'm saying? Like, I get emotional at times, and that's my kid, and I can see that in him. But I can also see the areas that he's going to struggle with. Sometimes he has anger, and he gets frustrated, and he is a, he's got a little bit of a mouth to him. So our job as parents is to guide our kids through their weaknesses and elevate their strengths. And as a pastor, I can see the same thing happening, that same truth working itself out. Because I can tell you it's a lot more fun to speak positive truth into someone's life than have to bring some sort of correction. That's not the fun part of being a pastor. Because we have to be careful when we bring that moment where we have to speak truth into somebody's life and we know it may hurt them. There's that really thin line, very, very, very easy you can move into that abuse and hurt others. And that's a very careful line. And we can do that with our kids too. If we're overbearing, if we're too hard and we push too difficult, that can, that can hurt them as, as well. So we have to be love. We have to show them love. We have to, we have to, we have to correct with love. And again, if you keep reading the Bible, you're going to find that these brothers that we just read about, some of the time they lived up to the words of their father Jacob, and sometimes they didn't. Again, not a single important Israelite came from Reuben, so that was true. But Ephraim, the one that he blessed, becomes one of the most evil tribes in all of Israel. Levi, who was cursed by his father in a way, his tribe later finds redemption. And we see that Judah 
is, is the scepter never leaves his, leaves his hand. So that brings me to my second point. Generations are not defined by past generations' sins. And I want to tread lightly here because I know this term generational curses gets thrown around a lot. And the reason why I want to tread lightly is because I think sometimes we need to be careful how we use that term or that word, curse. Because curses implies that one generation has no control of their destiny, that they're cursed by a past generation. Consequences. I like the term generational consequences, that our actions as parents can affect our kids and their kids. And the reason why I think this way is because adultery is not passed on from father to son or mother to daughter. Heroin addiction is not passed on as an inherited trait. We don't make inherit, like bad financial decisions because we inherited that trait from our parents. These are learned behaviors. These are things that can happen to us. But if we're not careful, we can. We can do this. You can raise a lustful child. If we're not careful... We can raise angry kids who hurt others. If we're not careful, we can raise disrespectful kids, those who hurt and abuse. And if we withhold truth from our kids as we see them growing up, and we don't apply loving consequences to their actions, now we run that risk of our kids just repeating the sins of their father or their mother. I cannot be blamed. The Bible is very clear about this. I cannot be blamed for the choices that my kids make. But the warning that I see here is as parents or future parents, what are the paths that I'm setting up my kids for right now? Am I taking, as a father or a mother, am I taking on the spiritual leadership of my home seriously? Or am I just creating an environment where those generational consequences can continue to play out in their lives? Am I allowing myself to be defined by what my parents did or my grandparents or my great-grandparents? Because maybe for some of us today, because I don't know what happened in your past or your, your, kids past, I mean your, your parents' past, maybe for some of us today, it's our time, like the Levites, to raise our hands and say, this day forward, I don't care what was happening in my past, from this day forward, I am going to stand with God. And that's how you change your kids' Kids, kids. Now the rest of chapter 49, we see Jacob. He finally passes. And the beginning of chapter 50 is the burial. They, he asks that his body not be placed in, in Egypt, that they bring his bones and his body back to Canaan where his family was buried. And we see that procession happen. So I encourage you to go back and read that. We're going to pick up in verse 15 of chapter 50. says this, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, he said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did. So they sent a messenger or a message to Joseph saying, isn't that classic, right? I'm going to send a messenger. I'm not going to go myself. I'm going I'm I'm to send a messenger. I'm kind of afraid of my brothers. I'm going to send a messenger. And he says this, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And I can tell you that that message is not found anywhere in the Bible. That's an interesting point that the brothers try to play over their brother Joseph. And now they say, now please forgive the transgressions of your servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, We are your servants, but Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am I in the place of God? For as for you, you meant what was for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. And at the end of chapter 50, Joseph passes as well when we get to the end of the book of Genesis. This little interaction between Joseph and his brothers, isn't that so how often how we react and interact with God? We are told over and over again in the New Testament that God has forgiven us. The psalmist says that our sins will be cast as far as from the east as to the west. 
The prophet Micah tells us he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. We know we are forgiven, set free, no longer slaves, redeemed. We have become the righteousness of God because of Christ Jesus. But just like the brothers who came before Jacob or Joseph, they heard their father was dead, and now they're afraid of their brother Joseph, and they're afraid that the real Joseph is going to stand up and enact his final revenge upon them for what they did to him about, you know, roughly 100 years before this. And isn't that so how often, again, how we interact with God? We know we're forgiven, set free, no longer slaves. We are redeemed. We have again, again become the righteousness of God. And this is one of the most important truths as a follower of Christ that we have to get deep down inside of us. Our sins have been and have already been forgiven. Through one act of love, we were forgiven. This is the essence of Ephesians chapter 2, Romans chapter 5, chapter 1 of 1 Peter. And so while we say this in our hearts, do we act as free men and women? Do we allow the forgiveness of our Father to come and cover us, or do we still approach God like Joseph's brothers, living in fear that one day the real God is going to bring about wrath upon me for my past sins? And so I have to ask this question as well. I wonder what's, if, if that's how we approach God at times. Is it really that we haven't even forgiven ourselves? Maybe we have accepted the forgiveness of God, but we haven't even gone to the place of forgiving our own sins. Because you, you look at Joseph and you can see that forgiveness wasn't even in his mind. It was already done. He had forgiven them decades before, but the brothers refused to walk in that forgiveness after all that they'd been through, and it was eating them alive. Let us as believers, as the faithful, not make the same mistake. Once you've accepted the forgiveness of God, begin that process of forgiving yourself. It may mean that you have to forgive yourself 70 times 7. It may mean that you have to seek out those that you've hurt who have hurt you. You may need some actual therapy. That's okay. You may need to talk to a pastor. But there's a connection between mentally accepting the forgiveness of God, and walking out that forgiveness. Because until you do that, there will always be that little bit of doubt, that little bit of fear, and it will keep you from walking in the fullness and the grace of Jesus Christ. So don't be like the brothers. Don't be full of anxiety and fear. Forgive yourself, because God already has. And that's where I'm going to close. I'm going to land this plane today on the book of Genesis Joseph tells his brothers what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Indeed, the message of Genesis is that. Over and over again, if you've read the book, we see humans doing evil, yet God somehow working all of that out for our good. Because Genesis starts with this amazing proclamation That God of Israel, the God of Israel, did something that no other God before them or at that time could ever do. And no, it wasn't just creating the earth. It was proclaiming that his creation, his people, would be made in his likeness. No other civilization at that time made a similar claim. Only gods were made, or kings were made in the image of God. But God made both male and female in his image. He gave them a responsibility in the garden to take care of his creation. And he only had one ask, like one simple thing. Don't eat of this one tree. Because then we're, now we're presented with the problem because we know we ate the tree. We know we ate the fruit. And because image bearers, his little image bearers, could not walk in the truth and decided to reach out and make decisions on their own, now we have a separation from God. There's a problem. Communion was lost. But though kind of like the end of Empire Strikes Back, there seems to be a problem. There is still hope. Chapter 3 tells us that a human's going to come. A seed's going to come from Eve. And that seed is going to crush the serpent's head. And for the next 47 chapters, 
we see God's plan for reuniting his people working itself out. After the flood, God calls Abraham and promises that through him all nations would be blessed. And then God begins to build his family with Abraham and then ends with these 12 sons in Egypt. So while Genesis may be the beginning, it is most certainly not the end. It takes roughly 2,000 years, but the rest of the Old Testament tells us and shows us how God would raise up Israel to a mighty kingdom, allow it to fall, how the seed of, of Eve would come as the Messiah, a Savior who would rescue the people from their bondage. Mark chapter 1, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Interesting choice of words for the first gospel written. The good news of Jesus Christ is that, as Mark would later say, is that the kingdom of God has come. God is here in human foam form, that Jesus himself embodied the very thing that we lost a thousand years ago. He was the kingdom of God on earth. He is the temple and the tabernacle. He is the ark and the mercy seat. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the greater Adam, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and David. He is the embodiment of the 12 tribes, the true Israel and the true king of Israel. He is the seed of Eve and the one human who could resist the temptations of the devil. He is our shepherd. He is the lion of Judah. He is both our sacrifice and high priest. He is Jesus. And if G Genesis shows us the weakness of man, and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy shows us the weakness of the law, then the Gospels tells us of the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, that he would do all of this, sending out his only son to die on a cursed tree to rescue his image bearers from being separated from their creator. And the offer that is given to us and all humans that will ever walk this earth is to simply believe that Jesus is the Messiah and accept this the free gift that is his life in place of our own. That's it. So allow that truth today to rush over you like a tidal wave. Let it knock you over. Let it break you of your pride that stands before you and God. Let's not hold on to it any longer because the effort on our part is minimal at best. All you have to do is reach out and eat of the tree of life. Amen? Amen.